African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, thank you for joining us for a new week of African Dialogue. It is Monday. Thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa. Remember, we're on DSTV Channel 802 on the audio bouquet. And you can also stream us live on www.channelafrica.co.za. Remember, this is African Dialogue, where we take a look at the big burning issues on the African continent, and we try to expound on them and try to contextualize uh, the big narratives on the African continent. And today, we're looking at uh, Libya and uh, we're looking at this uh, war that has been internal and has started to actually boil. Uh, yesterday, Libyan forces backing Libya's internationally recognized government fought house-to-house battles with troops loyal to commander military strongman Khalifa Haftar in the southern parts of the capital, Tripoli, and they seemed to be uh, gaining ground. Uh, so it seems that uh, the government is still keeping things uh, intact, not completely, but we know that Libya is now caught between a military strongman Haftar sells himself as the only one who can drive out terrorists in the country and a United Nations backed government under Prime Minister Fayez Al-Saraz, whose attempts to hold the national vote have so far only entrenched divisions. Uh, it was also reported uh, just a few days ago that Haftar has been endorsed by US President Donald Trump which is a very interesting thing because the uh, the president of the U.S. seems to be going against uh, the U.N.-backed government in Tripoli. I wonder why. But uh, let's uh, let's try and understand what's happening here. We've got Professor Peggy Tambam Gomezul, who is a political sciences department uh, uh, lecturer at the University of the Western Cape. We also have Ibrahim Dean, who's a researcher at the Afro-Middle East Center. Well, gents, I promise you, I know that we've been using you a lot in the last few weeks, especially when it comes uh, to what's happening in the Middle East. So we thank you, gents, for giving us your time. I hope that we don't have to call you back again. <laughs> but let me start with you, gents, and I'm going to give you a bit of a break after the show i really really promise but let me start the program with you ibrahim tell us a little bit why is this happening right now because someone is listening to us and saying what's going on in libya we know after uh, the Gaddafi area it seems like things have not been actually been able to be restored in the country and it seems like uh, things are even falling further apart right now okay so what's happening is after Gaddafi fell, uh, you know, everyone in the international community specifically didn't look at Libya and they thought it will mysteriously, uh, you know, uh, become a democratic state that has popular participation, popular representation. What happened was, you know, Gaddafi's institutions, all the institutions were built in Gaddafi's name. And so once he fell, all the institutions fell. We started then seeing the rise of these militia groupings, uh, which in 2013, for example, forced politicians to you know, to pass a, an isolation law, uh, which, like, basically barred virtually everyone from standing in, in Parliament uh, for Gaddafi links even up to the 70s. But since 2014, we've started seeing a new conflict. Uh, Khalifa Haftar, a renegade general, you know, uh, uh, formerly very influential in helping Gaddafi rise to power, but then who defected to the U.S., he declared an Operation Dignity. So looking at what happened in Egypt, he said, 
if we fight and you know Islamism, we'll get support. And so basically, what happened was his Operation Dignity started in 2014 and has been very slow, but he's been gaining ground slowly. Supported by Egypt, supported by UAE, uh, supported by the French in recent days. What happened in the most recent incident is, you know, the UN has been trying to have a national dialogue or an election uh, in Libya uh, for the past two years, three years, since the Sherat Agreement in 2015. Um, and they were supposed to, you know, a big breakthrough was ha- happened earlier or late last year, and there was supposed to be a national conference that was going to be um, held in, in Redham in uh, supposed to be 14 to the 16th of April, um, and the, the you know the participation was quite wide. But Khalifa Haftar uh, believed that uh, he wanted to you know in, ensure or consolidate his influence, and so he wanted to create facts on the ground prior to the conference. So you know once the conference happened, it would just ratify his ascendancy, uh, and that's why on you know on April 4th he launched an operation in Tripoli, basically uh, you know trying to. Uh, counter the, you know, the internationally recognized government of national mm-hmm. court, and this is where we currently see ourselves. Let's look at this uh, personality that you've been highlighting here, and I'm sure a lot of people are listening to us are like, who is this Khalifa Haftar who is now thinking that he can actually stand against a UN-backed government, um, Ibrahim? Tell us a little bit about him, and tell us a little bit about why he's also getting some support from uh, uh, certain uh, groups that you have highlighted. Why are we seeing his prominence here? I mean, last week or two weeks ago, we heard Donald Trump saying that, well, he's actually endorsing Haftar against this UN-backed government. Who is this man? Okay, so Khalifa Haftar um, is, a, is a Libyan general with key in, uh, you know, in, in one of the few offices that uh, helped um, Gaddafi rise to power in the late 60s. He then fought many wars with Gaddafi, and then after, I think, the shared war in the 1970s, defected to the U.S. He is actually a U.S. citizen. He stayed, he stayed in Langley for a good few uh, decades and returned uh, in 2012. He, he was, uh, you know, a very peripheral figure up to 2014. But what happened in 2013 was, you know, we saw the military ouster of uh, Mohammed Morsi in Egypt. So we saw a counter-revolution, you know, occurring where the Gulf states started supporting uh, uh, candidates that were anti-Islamists because they believed that, you know, participatory or democratic Islam actually uh, threatened their grip on power. So seizing this opportunity, uh, after appeal to this anti, you know, visceral anti-Islamist uh, leanings or, or narrative, and basically launched what he would call Operation Dignity to clear Libya of all terrorists. Now his definition of terrorist, similar to Sisi's, includes both ISIS but also included... Uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, many uh, participants of Islam, such as the Muslim Brotherhood, such as the Justin Construction Party in Libya. Um, and as I said, initially, the, the, he wouldn't have had much influence because most of Libya, I mean, it's 97% Muslim, and most of them do believe that religion should play somewhat of a role in, in, in society. But because of the support that he has received from the UAE, from Egypt, that has basically given him, uh, you know, diplomatic support, financial support, military backing, they've provided him fighter jets, and so he's gained much influence. Um, and uh, late last year, he consolidated control of the South, uh, because it's, the South is much is very desert. 
Um, what happened two weeks ago, though, is that, you know, after his march on Tripoli, there's been a lot of condemnation, especially from the U.S., Britain, um, uh, Italy especially, uh, you know, because he's basically undermining this government of national accord itself. The government of national accord itself has, you know, legitimacy issues because it's, it's not voted in. It's only a government sure. that was formed because of international recognition. Mm. But anyway, uh, you know, the phone call with Trump basically after was appealed to, you know, counterterrorism. And, you know, the Trump administration or Trump himself is very uh, supportive of the counterterrorism effort. And so that's why Trump seemed to change the U.S. policy. And now there's been a silence from the U.S., mainly because, you know, many within the U.S. administration actually, you know, weren't in favor of Trump's uh, new relations with Hafter, but now have to readjust this new situation. Mm. Let me bring in Professor Begitemba Mgomezulu into this conversation. Uh, doesn't this Haftar character actually have um, a leg to stand on here, Professor Mgomezulu, uh, due to the fact of the fact that now it's it's five years in, or maybe around, I think four years in since um, the establishment of uh, Libya's unity government, which is UN-backed because we know it started in 2015. Four years down the line, we don't even hear strong assertions that there's a possibility of an election in the country. Does uh, Khalifa Haftar have a case here? I don't think so. Uh, First of all, there are a couple of issues you need to look at here. One, from an international relations perspective, we look at the role played by the UN in global politics. And in this case, uh, the UN, as my colleague has just pointed out, the UN is in support uh, of the government of national accord. So then one would expect then that any role player uh, in the Libyan case will be informed by the decision by the UN to back uh, the government of national accord. So anything outside of this is basically unprocedural and therefore not acceptable. And then on the other hand, you have the role of the AU. Uh, the AU does not uh, appreciate or it does not approve of anyone uh, taking power by force. Now, if you look at both uh, the UN and the AU, uh, none of them is in support of the approach that Khalifa Haftar is in fact using at the moment, that is uh, using force to take, um, uh, to take over power. This is just one side of the story. The other thing we need to look at are two issues. One is um, this notion of uh, transporting democracy. The, the, the notion of transporting democracy basically means that uh, you are a country that is uh, dominant in the global scene and you, are, you, you proclaim to be a democratic country, then want to take your vision of democracy and transport it to another country which allegedly doesn't have democracy. And this is what has brought us to where we are right here. We have seen this happening in Libya. We've seen this happening in Afghanistan. We've seen this happening in Iraq, and the list goes on. This notion of transporting democracy. And the other part, of course, is this R2P, the responsibility to protect, uh, which guides the UN. Under normal circumstances, R2P works in two ways. One is that uh, if a leader in a particular country is not uh, executing his or her duties accordingly or in line with the UN policies, that person then... Uh, will face face the anger uh, of the global community. So the global community will come in and protect the citizens of that country against their own leader. That is R2P. But the other way in which R2P is involved is if a country is attacked by a foreign country, then other members of the UN will come in and defend that country that is being attacked. 
in the case of Libya right now, there is no foreign attack. And in, in, in 2011, we saw this commotion that was happening. Of course, we knew that uh, there were outside forces that were at play, and eventually NATO came in and then trying to transport democracy. It didn't mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at this, uh, a Khalifa Haftar, therefore, this is a controversial figure, as my colleague Abraham has just indicated. This guy was at one point apprehended by Chad, and then at another point, he then sneaked out and then he lived in, in Virginia, in the U.S., for over 20 years. And now he's coming back. He's the leader of the Libyan National Army. So you cannot then use military means to usurp power from a legitimate structure, so to speak, in this case, at the GNA, that is Government of National Accord. So I think that the approach that Khalifa is, uh, is taking is not a legitimate one. And the involvement of the foreign countries with Egypt, UAE, and others is also illegitimate because in this case you have foreign countries that are coming in not through the AU, not through the UN. The question is what business do they have in Libya? Well, uh, that takes us to our break, and then we'll be back. And just to expound on some uh, some of those ideas that have been brought forward looking at uh, the Libyan situation uh, by uh, Ibrahim Dean, who's the researcher at the Afro-Middle East Center. And uh, you just heard Professor Begitemba Mgomenzul expounding on uh, some of those issues. He is uh, from the Political Sciences Department at the University of the Western Cape. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I'd like to look at maybe asking the question around the problematic stuff that uh, the U.S. is actually having in terms of supporting uh, Khalifa Haftar. And also, I want to quiz also the question around um, um, what Professor Mgomezul is highlighting in terms of the U.N. processes when it comes to Libya. Were those processes legitimate enough? Have those uh, support systems and structures been offered uh, to uh, the Libyan transitional government? And why is it taking so long? long for the elections to actually take place in the country doesn't the country need to prioritize a national vote currently so we'll come back to those issues after this break research shows that purpose-led organizations consistently outperform their competitors learn more about how shared value thinking can take your business to new heights at the Africa Shared Value Summit from the 23rd to the 24th of May 2019 in Nairobi, Kenya. Learn more and book your ticket at AfricaSharedValueSummit.com today. Channel Africa is a proud media partner of Africa Shared Value Summit and will broadcast live from the summit. Make sure you don't miss on the broadcasts on the 23rd and the 24th of May 2019. Log on to www.channelafrica.co.za or DSTV Channel 802 for more on what will be transpiring at the summit. Channel Africa from an African perspective. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa. This is where we give you the African perspective. Thank you for joining us on Shortwave on DSTV Channel 802. And if you're listening to us online, we're on www.channelafrica.co.za. Today, we're looking at the story whereby we are seeing, even over the weekend, we saw house-to-house battles uh, between uh, Libya's uh, forces backing uh, the country's internationally recognized 
Minister government, which was uh, fighting with uh, uh, troops that are siding with the strongman Khalifa after this was uh, in the capital, Tripoli. And when you just look at the statistics already, you're seeing, uh, you know, in the south of Tripoli, a lot of deaths that have actually occurred just that creates also the the idea that also just ordinary people are also struggling uh, and suffering uh, from uh, this uh, uh, Libyan issue. But let me come to you, Ibrahim, because uh, Professor Mgomezulu highlighted a few things that I'd like us to expound on, especially the problematic stance of the U.S. that call that was made uh, by uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, to uh, Khalifa Haftar. It seems like that is one that is very problematic, that stance. And where does that put the U.S. as uh, Professor highlighted the conventions of uh, the uh, United Nations-backed government and its stance in, in this matter? I think there's two things. You know, when we look at the U.S., um, and, and I think it's, it's it, as Professor Gomezulu said, I think everything he said is very correct in terms of the procedures that need to be followed and the legitimacy issue, especially in terms of international legitimacy. Um, I do, however, think that this is a fundamental problem with uh, the international system in general, that the UN can say something and other countries can, yes, agree with the statement, but do something totally contrary on the ground. And I think, you know, Trump's stance is, 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 is problematic, uh, you know, but in general, it's actually more a culmination rather than the source. The source of the issue is in terms of outside interference in Libya since, the, you know, the overthrow of Gaddafi and will we know we can problematize the overthrow of Gaddafi itself, but I mean, since this topic just mainly deals with you know what's happening now, mm. it's actually the role of other UN Security Council members, France and Russia. Uh, sure. who, you know, there was uh, in 2016 there was a French helicopter that fell down with special forces that were backing after, even though at the time he didn't even control. 20% of Libyan territory. So, you know, France has actually reasserted itself into the continent and sees backing strongmen as a key part or key method of reinserting itself. And France also uh, is very keen on Libya's oil, which the U.S. isn't. Russia also, similarly, you know, once uh, uh, many of the uh, overturn of many of the arms deals that uh, Gaddafi signed with the Russians and basically sees these arms deals being signed with Khalifa Haftar. So these two countries have actually, met, uh, have actually, in a sense, forced the situation to change or forced new facts on the ground. There was a UN resolution, Security Council resolution, going to be issued on, I think it was the 6th of April, just a day or two after the, you know, the, the actual offensive started. Um, and it was actually blocked by France and Russia. Uh, the second one was blocked by the U.S. and Russia. The first one was blocked by France. Uh, and, it, you know, it does show that, unfortunately, because two things. One is the, the international community or, you know, the, the, the U.N. Security Council is flawed because there are five permanent members with veto powers that can veto all the resolution. But also it doesn't have an implementation mechanism. You know, I've spoken with... Salam is uh, uh, deputy on this, and he's, you know, the UN is trying its hardest, but can't do anything because there is no implementation mechanism or, you know, monitoring mechanism. Mm. But two is, unfortunately, the role of the African Union, mm. you know, which has been sidelined from the Libyan issue uh, over the past couple of years. And also, uh, you know, a, a balancer previously was Algeria, mm. which has, you know, was able to contain Egypt, contain the UAE. Uh, but Khalifa Haftar, uh, you know, there's a, there's a leadership transition in Algeria at the moment. So, you know, these things have meant that it's been easier for these outside players to, to influence in a country. And unfortunately, you know, it's not, should, shouldn't, it's not procedurally correct. It's not legitimate. But, 
you know, uh, I mean, it, 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 it shows how the international system is failing and uh, how, you know, if it is left to be the way it currently is, we basically, it, it basically loses its legitimacy further. Mm. Um, Professor Mgomezul, your response to that, because I think that also problematizes uh, this uh, notion around also uh, the UN's uh, um, capacity to hold things together. No, I, I absolutely. I think my colleague is, is spot on. If you look at uh, the UN, it's not the first time that the UN is in such a failing to execute its responsibility. You would recall that um, uh, in Gulf War II, uh, you had uh, what was called the Resolution 1441, where the UN in fact had uh, sent uh, a scientist to check if the claim made by America that the weapons of mass destruction held by Saddam Hussein were in fact in existence. And even before that could happen, then you had uh, George W. Bush attacking Iraq and then eliminating a number of people. And then when asked as to why he did that, he came up with a phrase which he called a decapitation mission, basically saying that he saw an opportunity and he acted. And the UN didn't take any action. Under normal circumstances, you would expect that uh, by virtue of the fact that the UN is a world body, whenever a member state does something untoward, there should be repercussions. But then nothing happened. I think it's primarily because uh, uh, the U.S. has been uh, uh, providing a, a lot of funding uh, to the U.N. and then maybe some individuals in some countries are scared to take action against the U.S., which then sends wrong signals, which also points to the point that uh, uh, my colleague is making there about uh, uh, this um, irony where you say the U.N. is pro-democracy and yet the institution itself is acting in an undemocratic manner in the sense that only five countries are holding the entire globe hostage. So basically then you have the UN that in theory is supposed to maintain global peace, but you also have a weak UN which cannot flex its muscles when time calls. In this case, you would have expected that any member state that acts outside of the principles and policies of the UN should be acted upon, but nothing happened. And in this case, the, 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 the issue of France and Russia that is very interesting, as my colleague Ibrahim has just mentioned. If you look, for example, at the, what has been happening in Syria, uh, you had America taking one position, and then you had Russia taking another position, and both these countries have a veto power. So then one would say, we want action taken against an, a, a, a President al-Assad, and the other one would say, no, nothing will happen. And then the entire global community is just watching as spectators, because the two superpowers have just spoken. Sure. So we have a problem with the UN that has no teeth. And in fact, there is an element of a, a selective leadership, if I were to call it that way. Because if an African country were to do what the US has done to date, if different action would have been taken. But in this case, nothing has happened. So the Libyan crisis is going to continue simply because, as you correctly pointed out also in your introduction, that uh, you have the UN, which has clear policies in place, and it is clear as to what it stands for. It agrees, its member, its member states agree, but when they, when they leave the meeting, they do something else, which is something similar that is, the, 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 that is uh, facing the AU. The AU would meet at, at its headquarters in Addis, they will agree on something, they leave the meeting, nothing happens. They, they agree on an agreement like the Malabo Protocol we talked about last time, when they are supposed to ratify it, nothing happens. And then no action is taken. So then basically we have a problem. Okay.
Let's try take things back to Libya itself in terms of the role now that uh, the government has to actually play in this particular conflict. I know we haven't really spoken about that, um, especially the government under Prime Minister Fayez al-Siraz. Staying with you, Professor Amgomezulu, you know, it's complex, as you've highlighted, both you and Ibrahim, the fact that there are kind of friction, even from an, a UN level. Uh, what should be the stance of the government right now? What should be their next move be? Should they just be trying to constantly contain these internal conflicts? What more can be done by them? Yes, um, uh Fayez Al-Saraj has a role to play by virtue of the fact that he is currently the leader, the legitimate leader of Libya's government of national accord. But then he cannot do these things single-handedly. Of course, Libya is where it is, not because of Fayez, but primarily because of NATO. So NATO forces attacked Libya and they assassinated so under normal circumstances, then you would have expected them, after having killed Colonel Gaddafi, to then say, we now have this government of national accord. We are giving this government of national accord time frames that will guide the process. And these are the resources that we are putting in place. And these are the other support structures that we are putting in place, like, for example, maintaining peace and security, because you cannot hold an election in a country that has political instability. So the onus, therefore, is on both NATO and the, and, and the UN to ensure that there is a, a peace and security. Then once the situation is normal, you will then have an election which will then put in place a, a, a civilian rule. So in this case, of course, the GNA is um, qualifies a civilian rule, which is why I'm saying uh, Khalif Haftar is wrong by trying to take out use of power using military means. But then you cannot have a proper election in a country which has no political stability. So NATO and the UN are supposed to come to Faiz's assistance and ensure that uh, there is political stability, there is peace and security, then we'll have an election. Okay, what are your thoughts there, Ibrahim? I agree with Professor Gomezuba. I mean, the UN needs to first ensure stability, and to ensure stability right now, it needs to stop the offensive. That's the, that the first thing it needs to do. Secondly, it needs to uh, basically institute that national dialogue that was supposed to be instituted between the 14th and the 16th of April, because, you know, the, the, the national government, the key reason as to why the national government is so weak is because it has international legitimacy and not so much domestic legitimacy because it was imposed after Skirat in 2015. Uh, it wasn't actually an elected government. So it needs a national dialogue on to actually decide a new roadmap and then elections and then a process also after elections because I think this is where NATO, the UN and all have failed is they've just thought that we're just going to leave Libya, nothing is going to happen, we're, even we'll just look elections and where we're comes in charge, will we'll take over and it will be normal. No, there needs to be a process. But the first step, the first step is trying to stop the offensive because what's happening now is it's doing two things. It's actually destroying Libya further, destroying the, you know, creating instability across the region. Uh, but, I mean, the one counter that it's having is actually unifying forces behind the government of national accord. Uh, you know, which previously many of these militia groupings weren't, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, very pleased with the GNA. They now are defending the GNA. So that's, that's you know, something it can build on. So 
So it needs to, one, uh, basically stop the stuff, uh, the, the current ceasefire, ensure the dialogue, also look at how we can incorporate these different militia groupings, because there's thousands of militia groupings um, with very different and disparate ideas. And then there's the election and a process after election, which I think is as key. Okay, I'm going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll wrap up this conversation as well in terms of uh, expounding on that idea of also the African Union's uh, role in this. I know that Ibrahim Dean was saying earlier on that they've been sidelined in the Libyan uh, processes. Uh, We'll look at that after the break. SABC News mobile app is your one-stop digital portal to all the news you need. Stay connected with the latest and breaking stories. Watch the SABC News channel along with clips and live streams of all the big news events and listen to all the SABC radio stations live, including podcasts and much more. Simply download the SABC News app to your Android or iOS device from either the Play Store or the App Store. SABC News, independent, impartial. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1,000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Well, we're about to wrap up this very complex uh, uh, program that we're having today, looking at uh, the Libyan internal war that is uh, currently at play. If you're just joining us now, we have Professor Peggy Temba Mgomazulu from the University of the Western Cape. Ibrahim Dean also joins us from the Afro-Middle East Center. Well, uh, let's come back to that point, uh, Professor Mgomazulu, around what Ibrahim was saying earlier on, around the fact that uh, the AU has been sidelined from the uh, Libyan uh, um, decision-making issue. Maybe it's because uh, um, the UN has been actually taking over this whole process and the, the government is already backed by the, the UN. But it seems whenever the situation like that, we always see the African Union almost taking a sidestep. No, the, UA, the AU has been sidelined for quite some time. In fact, even before Colonel Muammar Gaddafi was assassinated, the AU was sidelined. Because as you would recall, there was a time when you were saying that uh, they want to uh, open negotiations with the Libyan government under uh, Muammar Gaddafi at the time. But before that could happen, of course, the AU, I mean, I mean the uh, NATO forces uh, jumped in and then they created that chaos. And then after creating the chaos, they, they stepped out and then they left the country as it was. Now, when it comes to uh, trying to then bring some uh, stability uh, in Libya, you would expect that uh, the AU could step in and then say, now you have the uh, GNA, 
Let us try and support it and make sure that elections take place. But the main problem that the AU is facing is that there are not enough financial resources. You would recall that uh, some of the projects, the AU projects, cannot be implemented simply because there is no financial backing that the AU has. And in most of these projects, it has to rely on the international community. So this means, therefore, that as much as the AU would want to do something to try and resolve the Libyan crisis, there is very little it can do as long as it is not financially stable. Because for it to be able to do what it wants to do, it needs the financial backing to enable it to do so. From a political angle, it can do something that is possible, but then politics alone is not enough without the financial backing. And the AU, I mean the NATO and the UN are in a better position to assist Libya than the AU is. Mm. Ibrahim? I mean, I think it's true. You know, the AU has been sidelined for a, a good amount of time. I think, though, that what the AU did previously was that cleverly reinsert itself through its support of the Neighborhood Initiative, which was initiated by Algeria, Tunisia, and Egypt to try and negotiate the solution. I think that is critical because Egypt, Egypt and Tunisia are on different sides, uh, and uh, you know Algeria is able to balance all these stuff. Uh, you know, the two parties, also the contending, the outside powers, have to gain in the south is also been because of the leadership transition in Algeria. Um, so I think that the, 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 the problem, though, is the AU needs to, in some way, reinvigorate this neighborhood initiative because, you know, for a solution to be found in Libya, and the EU is talking about the July reconciliation meeting, which doesn't mean much if we don't have the buy-in from Algeria, Tunisia, and Egypt, and I think proper buy-in from them. Um, the, the, you know, Tell us why. Why, why Ibrahim, would you need that buy-in from them? Mainly because Egypt is supporting Haftar currently. Egypt shares a, a very long border with Libya, okay. uh, especially the east. Algeria shares the border on the south. Right, um, mm. and also Algeria is very fearful of Egypt. Egypt is also fearful of Algeria, so they contain each other. Mm. And Tunisia is one of the few countries that have actually, since the Arab Spring or Arab uprisings, have you know have had somewhat of a of, of, of a consolidation of democracy. I think these three players are very very important, and the EU needs to find a way of actually empowering this initiative uh, going forward. Uh, you know, unfortunately. As uh, Professor Gomezulu says, is the UN has the finances, the funding, the influence, and the Security Council members, which is the other problem. Um, but for a solution to be found, there needs to be a national dialogue. There needs to be a dialogue before an election and a process after elections. Uh, because you don't want Khalifa. I mean, there's 50% of the people now that they say would support Khalifa after because they're just so tired of the instability, which means, you know, it could be very, very uh, detrimental to Libya going forward. We are in election exactly now. So there needs to be these processes, a proper transitional process, uh, a proper incorporation, of, uh, and, and, and basically there needs to be adherence to rights. And the EU, because it hasn't played so much of a role in the past seven years, does have a unique insight in this, or a unique role in this. Uh, but, I mean, at the, at the moment, it's currently, you know, out, all out violence and all out conflict. And the only way for these political solutions to start is for a ceasefire to be reached. And, you know, if France and Russia and the U.S. now continue to support uh, after, it's actually going to embolden him to go further and worsen the situation. Yeah. 
Professor Mgomezulu, your final sentiments in terms of that uh, last statement that was made by Ibrahim there, the fact that uh, the, the probabilities that we're still going to see an ongoing um, internal conflict in the country. No, I agree entirely because for as long as you have foreign nationals having vested interests in, in, in Libya, it's not easy to find a quick solution. Because more especially given the fact that uh, uh, the, the countries we're talking about are, are powerful countries, influential countries in the UN Security Council. So which means that even if you try to sponsor a motion in the UN Security Council, one of these countries can just use its veto power to, um, to, to bring it down. So then for, uh, for as long as they are benefiting from the current situation, they would want to sustain it because that is what normally happens. Uh, when you look at most of the crisis situations across the African continent, one of the reasons why uh, we cannot resolve those uh, crises is simply because there are countries, international uh, uh, community members, that are benefiting from the process. And then you try to use the UN as a global body to diffuse the situation, and then those countries use their veto power uh, to make sure that uh, that particular crisis continues, because for as long as it is there, they will continue benefiting from it. The reality of the matter is the fact that we have oil uh, in, in Libya means that there will be countries from outside the African continent who want to sustain the status quo so that they can continue to benefit. Because once you have political stability, once you have economic stability, then, of course, your chances of uh, looting the state, as it were, are limited. With the same thing happening in Nigeria and the Niger Delta, we, we, we ask ourselves, how come that the major data crisis is not coming to an end? It's, it's, it's partly because there, there is an international community that has vested interest and that plays into this internal politics for their own benefit. So the Libyan situation will not end for as long as there is no appreciation from the international community that stability should prevail in Libya. And the AU mm. will continue to be the bystander for the reasons we've just stated. Well, thank you, Jens, for giving us your time. Also, what I love about having you guys on the program is that sometimes you guys speak in a layman's voice, which some people like me can actually understand. So we really appreciate you giving us the context and understanding of the situation. Thank you to Ibrahim Dean, researcher at the Afro Middle East Center. Thank you as well to our final speaker. That was Professor Begitemba Mgomezulu, the political sciences department lecturer at the University of the Western Cape. Thank you all for giving us your time. Thank you very much for having us. Fantastic.